Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 18th of November. Today, as Britain's worst 10 railway stations are named and shamed, we'll hear from the second worst station in the UK, Clapham Junction. It's not very pleasant to look at. Uh, the shopping centre out the front is uh, very poor. There's some poor shops, but hey, it gets you everywhere you want to go. And a piece of Amsterdam's red light district comes to the National Gallery. Oh, they're just friends. But they all knew they were going to be hookers. I think what they've tried to do is they're trying to sex up the National Gallery, really. And it's a bit like a, a vicar dancing at a disco. They just don't really know how to get it right. First, the news headlines and the papers with Bill Overton. It's the Queen's speech to Parliament today and the government's expected to put forward 15 new bills. There are two on the economy, one promising to halve the national debt called the Fiscal Responsibility Bill and another giving power to tear up bankers' contracts if they get paid bonuses for taking risks. Another bill would give disabled and elderly people the right to free personal treatment in their own homes. But with only a few months before a general election, the Conservative leader in the House of Lords has told The Guardian Tory peers will delay legislation until it runs out of time. Israel's approved building 900 new homes at a settlement in disputed East Jerusalem on land captured in the 67 war. But the UN and the US have criticised the plan for undermining efforts to bring peace with the Palestinians. The Palestinian Authority has refused to join any further talks until all such building is stopped. Most Afghans, 70%, believe poverty and unemployment are the main causes of conflict in their country. A poll by the charity Oxfam shows nearly half think corruption and ineffective government are more of a problem than violence by the Taliban and al-Qaeda. A US government report shows more than a million children regularly go to bed hungry. The survey also finds 50 million Americans are unable to buy sufficient food to stay healthy. President Obama has called the report unsettling and pledged to eradicate hunger among children. Here in Britain, a senior police officers called for all social networking sites on the internet to have a panic button for children. The button allows children to report online abuse, bullying and illegal activity. Bebo has put one on its site, but the police unit dealing with child protection online, the CEOP, wants other sites such as Facebook and MySpace to do the same. There are various reports on the Queen's speech in the morning papers. The Financial Times says the fiscal bill is most central to the government programme and that Gordon Brown is trying to restore his reputation before the election. Our paper reports Tories in the Lords will kill off Queen's speech bills by delaying tactics. The Telegraph headlines Children Get Legal Right to a Good Education, saying a new bill will give parents guarantees of what they should expect from state education. The paper comments sarcastically that teachers fear it will be a whinger's charter. The Mail and Express go for righteous indignation in their lead story. Britain ruled by Belgian, you must be joking, shouts the Express, above a report that Belgian PM Herman von Rompuy is tipped to become the first EU president. The Mail complains that 8 in 10 savings accounts lose cash because as inflation goes up, many banks pay interest rates just above zero. Our paper puts a photo of the latest soldier to be killed in Afghanistan on the front page. He was a Territorial Army infantryman who put his career as a sales manager on hold. The headline is about the last blog he wrote before being shot, still waiting for new body armour. But the armies insisted the new armour would not have given him any more protection, nor would it have saved his life. Finally, the Times warns us of revolution in the air for the home of cricket. It seems Lords is trying to raise £400 million for redevelopment and may offer to sell the name of the ground to a new sponsor. Suggestions, please. And to read more news, go to guardian.co.uk.
I'm outside Clapham Junction Station, which was named yesterday as one of the 10 worst railway stations in the country. The government's announced that £50 million extra is going to be provided for these 10 worst stations. Manchester Victoria is the worst, apparently, and followed by Clapham Junction, and then Crewe in Cheshire. This is a report by the so-called station champions, Sir Peter Hall and Chris Green, who've carried out a survey into all the stations in the country. Lord Adonis, the Transport Secretary, was here at Clapham Junction earlier today. He said that a railway station should be a hub of local community life, somewhere that you wouldn't mind spending time with adequate facilities. Well, I have to say that Clapham Junction is a station that I use quite often, and uh, it's not a pleasant experience. Let's go and find out what other people think. What would you hope for? I mean, what's not here that you think would make uh, it a bit of a more pleasant place to be? Probably clearer signposting as to which platform to go to, because that's always a struggle. Um, there may be some more coffee facilities or that sort of thing. And I don't know about you, but I came on to the station through this, this corridor yeah. down here, and I mean, it's not very nice down there, is it? If it had sort of better lighting, maybe, and was yeah, just a bit a bit easier to navigate, because you end up bumping into everyone. With a heavy case trying to get up and down these stairs, it's it's not the easiest of things to negotiate, really. I mean, I mean, and what would you hope for? I mean, apart from lifts, but I mean, what kind of facilities uh, would you think would be the minimum, really, that a, a railway station of this size? Because there are 16 platforms here. It's a very important station, isn't it? They should have more facilities. Yeah. And you're sending for old people trying to get up, up and down these stairs is uh, it's not easy. I'm here in the middle of the day, lunchtime, where it's uh, it's pretty empty, happily, because quite often, and come here at rush hour, it's absolutely heaving. You, you enter um, a very narrow corridor, and this is really the main part of the station. There's no kind of station hall or anything like that. No, there's no daylight. Just entering this kind of concrete corridor, uh, and it's it's really unpleasant. Uh, I would have to agree, it's not very pleasant to look at. Uh, the shopping centre out the front is uh, very poor, there's some poor shops, um, but hey, it gets you everywhere you want to go. Well, we come here um, every week and uh, we find no problem with it, do we? No, no I don't find anything. You're always on time, we have no problem. Is it easy to um, get up and down? Because people have been saying there's no lifts and they have yeah, a problem. That is a problem. They're doing it. Doing it. All right, OK. Well, I'm here as a tourist and quite frankly, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> where are you going to? Maybe I could help. Guildford. Guildford, right, yeah, OK. 10 and 11. 10 and 11, right, OK. So uh, 11, well, there's 11, but I think 10 is on a, di on a different... Um, different set of stairs aha uh -huh. maybe this will uh, tell us next fastest direct train to yeah I've read those and nobody no me I it doesn't it's not clear to me either I use Clapham Junction a lot uh, Around for a ticket well, it says here which platform, so this yeah, this should help. There's a some little blue sign. Um, so, Guildford. Guildford nine and eleven. Guildford nine and eleven. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, they're on different yeah. platforms, aren't they? So. But and there's no one who's employed here who can actually tell you where to go or what to do. Right, I'll go down to platform 11 and see if, and I'll come back and see if I can find anything out. Excuse me, what's the best um, next train to Guildford? What's the right platform to Guildford? Fast train or, or, or slow train? I suppose ideally a fast train. This one, no. Ele 11, yeah? No, no, Not, nine. Number nine, yeah? Hello. Um, yes, platform nine, 22 minutes past. 
I've just read on those huge big signs I've gone through. <laughs> and it's, at least it's a fast train anyway, so uh, yeah. Well, 22 minutes past from platform nine. There you go, do good deed for the day. I bet you don't get this on other podcasts. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, Freakonomics co-author Stephen Levitt defends his new book's stance on climate change. The solution is not scientific, and the scientists masquerade around as if, as if the answer of carbon mitigation is coming out of the science, but it's not. Also on the Guardian's website today. Hello, my name is Paolo Bandini, and I'm a sub-editor for the sports section of the Guardian. Today on Guardian.co.uk Sport, we have our weekly knowledge football trivia column, which answers all your questions about the world of football. We have David Conn's Inside Sport blog, which is asking today whether or not the criticism of Lord Treesman is fair. Then in the evening, we've got our live score service, which gives you all the goals, all the goal scorers, all the stats on tonight's games, including the World Cup playoff games. And we'll have blog reaction and match reports on the playoff games, including Ireland versus France, as soon as those games finish. That's guardian.co.uk forward slash sport. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. But first, the world's carbon sinks, forests, oceans and soil, are becoming less efficient because of climate change. That's according to a major new study. The research was led by the British Antarctic Survey and Corinne Lekiri from the University of East Anglia. Of all the CO2 that's emitted to the atmosphere, only about 45% stay in the atmosphere and the the remaining goes into the carbon sink. And what our analysis shows is that this fraction looks like it has increased from 40% 50 years ago to 45%. And that means that more CO2 is staying in the atmosphere, amplifying global warming. Why is that happening then? Now, we've used model to try to understand the processes, and according to our models, the carbon sinks are responding to climate change and variability that has occurred in the past 50 years. Have we reached a tipping point? Well, a, a tipping point uh, really regards specific processes in the climate system. The one tipping point that is closest to us is the melting of the Arctic sea ice, and that indeed is occurring much faster than what our models predict. And then very close afterwards is the melting of Greenland ice sheet. And that's a very worrisome tipping point because in Greenland there is a, a potential for seven meters of sea level rise just by melting the Greenland ice sheet. So what needs to happen at next month's climate summit in Copenhagen for the climate to be stabilised? Well, it depends very much at what level one wants to stabilise climate, but if it is to stabilise at two degrees above pre-industrial level, then the global emissions of greenhouse gases need to peak between 2015 and 2020, and they are now going up at 3% per year, so this is a huge task, and then they need to decrease sharply afterwards between 4 and 9% per year until they're down to about uh, 8 percent of their 2005 emissions, so at 20 percent of their 2005 emissions, so an 80 percent cut. Corinne Lekiri, and there's more on global warming now. 
In their new book, Super Freakonomics, authors Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt argue that asking individuals to reduce their carbon emissions will fail because they have no financial incentive to do so. But is Levitt, an economist at the University of Chicago, out of his depth when talking about environmental issues? No, absolutely not, because we're not trying to answer questions that require... Uh, you know, me to have a PhD in climate science answer. Uh, we're taking the science as given. But instead of putting the science together, I mean, so look at what, uh, maybe I shouldn't compare myself to Al Gore, but look at what Al Gore and, but, but the people who run in his crowds, the climatized, they put together science with morality and they say, we owe future generations a debt to return the earth the way it is. Well, that part of that is a science, that the earth's getting warmer. But the solution is not scientific. And the scientists masquerade around as if, as if the answer of carbon mitigation is coming out of the science, but it's not. Okay? That is something else. That is, that is scientists and activists acting as moralists. Okay? I'm putting the science together, the economics, to answer a question which I would think that every environmentalist would want answered, which is, in the case of catastrophe, if the earth is about to perish, would we not want to have invested a little bit of money, just a few hundred million dollars, so that we could buy enough time to figure out how to save us? Okay? To the extent that environmentalists don't care about the answer to that question, I think you have to question whether environmentalists care about the earth. I mean, it's an insurance policy on trying to figure out what happens when we go wrong. I think the criticisms of it have come because um, environmentalists feel that if these policies are available, they're too cheap, they're too easy, and people will lose the will to do the incredibly difficult and possibly costly task of trying to mitigate carbon. And and I think that environments have painted themselves in a corner saying that carbon mitigation is the only solution we have. And I think in 50 years, if we follow that path, we are going to be in exactly the same place we are now, wringing our hands, uh, watching the earth get warmer, and wondering what we're going to do to solve the problems. And we'll be 50 years behind where we could have been on investing in technologies to actually will solve the problems. Stephen Levitt and Super Freakonomics by Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dubner is published by Alan Lane. And you can listen to more from Stephen Levitt in this week's business podcast at guardian.co.uk slash audio. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. A recreation of a street in Amsterdam's red light district, as it looked in the 1980s, opens at London's National Gallery today. The Herengracht, or the Hawes Canal, by Ed and Nancy Keenholtz, is to be shown alongside paintings from the gallery's permanent collection of Dutch masters. The Guardian's Kate Connolly reports. The Herengracht captures the red light district of 1980s Amsterdam, but because new rules and regulations introduced to increase safety and hygiene have changed it dramatically, it's now not only considered to be an artwork, but also a historical documentation, which is why, after the National Gallery, it'll go on to show in Amsterdam's historical museum. The Herengracht is a big walk-in installation that will fill the Sunday room in the National Gallery, which is a, a fairly sizeable room right in the middle of the picture collection. Colin Wiggins is the National Gallery curator responsible for bringing the Herengracht to London. You are given, by entering into the installation, the role of being a voyeur, as it were, a kind of potential client. And it's a, a, a sculpture that really makes you confront the issue of prostitution and the morality of the whole system and the history of it. Nancy Keenholz is the surviving half of the artist duo. Inside the installation, she tells me how the Herengracht was constructed. We made it in our apartment in Berlin and finally we couldn't even get to the bedroom because it was taking over. 
It needed to be big enough to give you the idea of walking a block and uh, turning a corner. And so it just, it's what happened. People will probably want to know how you got in touch with the prostitutes when you were there, how you communicated with them. We would go up to the doors and ask them if we could take a picture of the interior of the room. And first day or so that we were there, they would were not nice to us. And then they'd realize that we were paying 50 guilders or 100 guilders, whatever it was. So then they got very friendly and they would wave at us and say, what about my room? How would you like to use this? But the, the women themselves are not actually modeled on the prostitutes no. you, uh, you met there. Who are they modeled on? Oh, they're just friends. And you were never exactly sure, you know, who it was you were going to use. But they all knew they were going to be hookers. They're using the piece to compare it to the Dutch old masters and to compare the light of this piece now made in the, in the 80s to what they made in the 14, 15, 1600s. Looking at the piece here, it's hard to imagine it in the National Gallery. Imagine no, it's not something I ever imagined would happen. I mean, it's quite, it's, it's more shocking to me, I think, than it will be to anybody else. Nancy Keenholtz, ending that report by Kate Connolly. Now, Adrian Searle, the Guardian's art critic, told me he was disappointed. I think it's a fairly feeble work compared to a lot of Ed Keenholtz's earlier works, and it's a very literal and obvious kind of rendition or copy of a, of a, of a kind of street with uh, ill-lit windows and women standing in doorways and uh, waiting for clients, reading, sitting around... Um, and generally um, looking miserable. The work of Ed Holtz has influenced uh, many British contemporary artists, people like Damien Hirst. So people say, but, but whether, whether he's quite as influential directly um, as he's been made out to be, especially by um, some of the people at the National Gallery, is a moot point. I think he was an important artist, but he wasn't a great artist. I mean, he made some tremendous works in the 1960s and 70s, very disturbing installations. And I suppose you could say that he was a kind of one of the um, kind of keynote installation artists of the period. But with installation art, could, you could say, goes back to the sort of 15th century, to um, Italian Renaissance churches. And um, but um, yeah, he's a he's a he's a big cheese. <laughs> um, this is the first time that the National Gallery has has had a, a modern installation of this sort. That's not that's not true either. I mean, they've done installation. They've had a whole exhibition of installations a few years ago, and they've done quite a few exhibitions of contemporary art, most of which have uh, kind of missed the point or um, chosen bad artists. Does this one miss the point? Well, I think I think what they've tried to do is they're trying to sex up the National Gallery, really. And they're trying to make it look hip and relevant. And it's a bit like a, a vicar dancing at a disco. They just don't really know how to get it right. And I, I don't feel really that um, it does anybody any favours, this exhibition. And, and although they've put alongside it um, paintings by artists like Peter de Hook and uh, Jan Stern, which actually, you know, deal with prostitution, they're far livelier and far more um, and morally ambiguous and strange works than than this which is a fairly feeble and flat-footed illustrative uh, kind of thing that you might almost find in a fun fair do you think national gallery patrons will be scandalized or, or indifferent 
I don't think anyone will be scandalised, and I think people might just be mildly irritated. It's just not a great installation. Adrian Searle. You've been listening to Guardian Daily, produced by Andy Duckworth, Raina Miller and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Listener.